Australia's very expensive sovereign identity crisis and more Australians targeted by McCarthyism. Will you be next? Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 20th of April 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. We've got a bit to talk about on today's show. We're going to touch first on what Penny Wong had to say at the National Press Club this week. It's a pitched battle between her and Mr Keating. You'll soon know which side we're on. Uh, and then we'll talk about an update to last week's show where we talked about Australians that are being targeted and, in fact, tortured uh, under national security laws, and um, we've got a new case of that already since that last show. Um, now, don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe and ring the notification bells to be alerted of new shows coming out and new material, and share this as widely as you can so that the word gets out. And if you can, uh, you can follow the link below to donate and to help us do and run the campaigns that we're constantly doing, and we've got uh, some big things coming up to campaign on, that's for sure. Um, so before we get into uh, the show proper, a couple of announcements. Firstly is the new deadline. Of course, we had an extension for the inquiry into regional bank closures and the new deadline's approaching rapidly. That's next Friday, the 28th of April. Um, now, if you haven't made your submission, please do so. But also, um, contact your local mayor or councillor, maybe you know a councillor in your local community, particularly if you live in one of the 64 towns that's about to lose a NAB branch, and maybe we can put those back on the screen, but we did talk about that, you and Robbie talked about that at length last week, uh, where there's um, a pattern whereby the NAB has been reducing the hours that the branches are open, and that always precedes announcements of closures. So on the list you'll see uh, that the red ones, I think, are the ones that are already closed, yeah, and then the right. yeah, the other ones are all uh, on the chopping block because they've already reduced their hours. And we've had some really excellent responses with um, our supporters calling up local councillors. Um, we had one mayor who had run into our candidate at the last election, and uh, when we contacted him, he was like, oh... Now I realise why your candidate was going on and on about a postal bank <laughs> during the campaign. Um, another mayor also recalled meeting with one of our activists months, maybe a year back. We've had great interest from uh, councillors in city areas, including from Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne, who are either very keen or have already or are in the process of putting up a motion regarding um, bank closures, writing to the government to protest this uh, and or are um, engaging in activity to interact with the inquiry. Um, and, uh, yeah, lots of good responses. There's a, a mayor in WA who's going to take it to the local government association. Uh, also, Robert Barwick did interviews in regard to these 64 planned um, or, you know, closures that are looking likely from NAB with radio stations in Burke and Narromine and also on TGB today. Um, Bendigo are also reporting closures. There's articles that have come out on that. Um, you know, send us. If you've got other examples, please let us know because, mm. of course, APRA that should keep a tab on all of this doesn't do so. In fact, you know, hides it all. Yeah, and that includes in the suburbs because, as we said, this is... The inquiries, uh, because of the blatant way the banks are doing this in the regions, is why it came up there in the Rural, rural and Regional Affairs and Transport Committee, but it is a, a national issue. I mean, yes. uh, suburbs, uh, inner city suburbs, uh, some, of these, some of these councils that have already passed these uh, resolutions because the banks are doing it everywhere. It's just more noticeable out in the bush. Yeah, and we need to impinge on that inquiry and the parliament as a whole that this needs to be extended to the whole country. Uh, now, another uh, major bit of news from today, just to preface the, uh, the rest of what we'll go through, and we'll talk about this more next week, but as people would have heard in the news, the Reserve Bank of Australia Review put out their final report today and recommendations, and it is absolutely stunning. 
uh, because they have basically done exactly what we told them not to do. You know, we've been pushing and a number of senators um, from One Nation, the Liberal Party, the Greens have been raising in Senate hearings the necessity for the RBA to be dictated to and directed by the government um, that instead of, you know, running up asset bubbles in a time of crisis, they could be directing funding into building the nation. Mm. Well, the and I'm just going to mention just the very first recommendation from this review today, and we'll look at it more later, but in that first recommendation, uh, this review states that the government should remove the power of the Treasurer to overrule the RBA's decisions, which is something that remains from the fights that the old mm. Labor Party of Curtin and Chifley had had um, to determine that the government had to have the final say in matters of banking because it's such an important factor for the economy as a whole. So they're saying scrap that. And they're also saying the government should remove the RBA's powers in the Banking Act 1959 to determine the lending policy of banks, which is something that the senators had raised um, that the RBA could do uh, in terms of preventing asset bubbles from forming. They could have different interest rates for different sectors of the economy. Uh, and so they're saying scrap that as well. And finally, they're also uh, recommending that the uh, objectives of the Reserve Bank be only economic, um, sorry, full, full employment and um, price stability. So, you know, interest rate changes to, you know, foster or to um, tamp inflation. So it would only have those two dual objectives and they would take out the third objective, which is currently there, which is the probably most important one, which is the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. That would be removed. It would no longer be an objective. It would rather be just an overarching guidance, which means they could just ignore it altogether. Um, so, yeah, that's in a nutshell um, that they're going to remove, recommending removing all democratic uh, accountability from mm. the Reserve Bank and put it completely into private hands, yep. which is how they'd been acting anyway, but... In the period we're coming into of a new global financial breakdown and of politicians like those we've been working with that are proposing alternatives to build this nation, to build out of the crisis and preempt the crisis indeed, um, they want to take this mm. option off the table and lock us into the regime ahead of austerity to crush the people and the economy to keep the banking system in place to save it. Yeah. Explicitly reject their... Uh, obligation to the common good instead of just de facto like it is now. Mm. Yes, so that's going to be a big fight coming up and you'll hear more from us on that very soon with media releases, with uh, content in the alert service and next week's show we'll definitely talk about it. So on to our first topic, Australia's very expensive sovereign identity crisis. So uh, we're going to talk about Penny Wong's address to the National Press Club this week. Uh, which really was uh, an attempt by the Labor Party to defend itself from the attacks that Paul Keating, you know, has levelled. Others as well, but of course he's the big name and he's the one that sticks out within the Labor Party. Um, and so it was very interesting that Penny Wong felt that she had to hark back to Labor leaders of the past, such as John Curtin, in order to try to defend the position. Of course, it was all based on com a complete um, uh, twisting of history mm -hmm. and complete lies because uh, she uh, stated that in sticking with the US alliance and sticking with AUKUS and the submarine deals and, you know, the planned war against China, um, that this is just reinforcing Curtin's wartime turn to America, where Curtin in 1941 broke from Britain and aligned with America. Mm. Um, so this is just either complete historical ignorance or... <laughs> she can't possibly be that stupid. Others I might believe so. Penny Wong is not stupid, whatever else she might be. Mm. This is not just twisting, but a complete inversion of the truth. Well, that's right, because in fact um, what she is suggesting is more akin, as we wrote in our alert service, to what Menzies did where ahead of World War II he came out and announced, well, look, if Britain's at war, we are at war. You know, in other words, no question, we're yeah. in lockstep. Do anything a London says down to the last man and the last shilling. That's right. 
On the other hand, what John Curtin did, uh, and he came into power in October 1941, and of course we were, we had all of our troops overseas, we were completely exposed, we had no defences, we were working on a very um, thin pledge from the British that they would send someone to help us if, you know, the Japanese got active in the Pacific. Uh, but when, of course, Pearl Harbour was attacked in December 1941, Curtin immediately moved. He said, no, we're not, you know, putting our defences on that kind of a flimsy promise from the British. We're getting out, we need our troops back here, we need to mobilise our economy. Of course, there was a lot of economic and industrial um, action that went into impact effect immediately to build this country's defences, which the legacy of which lasts to this day, although they've nearly run it down entirely. Um, and so he gave a speech in uh, December, on the 27th of December 1941, and said, I make it clear that Australia looks to America free from any pangs about our traditional links of friendship to Britain. So he broke with the existing alliance, hmm. the very opposite of what Penny Wong sticking to it, he broke with it. Uh, and, of course, within less than six weeks of him making that call, we had the attack, uh, the bombing of Darwin. So, you know, he made exactly the right call. What Wong is doing is the exact opposite. She's doing exactly what Menzies did, mm. who said that we would defend Britain to the last man and the last shilling. Yeah, and the other thing that's the exact opposite is this time we're not just sticking with the established alliance in defiance of all common sense and national interest, but we are the ones on the attack, mm. right? Yes. The Americans and Wong, as we'll get through, as we'll get to shortly in this speech, are pretty much openly talking about this being about bottling up China, stopping them from doing absolutely this, that, and the other, with uh, yeah, under the threat of war. That's what we're doing. We're the aggressors here. Well, there was a. Um, I was just looking back over it. There was an article in the Australian recently where there was a, this secret conference uh, over there in the United States, a lot of top military people. This was organised by Christopher Pine. Um, James Patterson was there. But the US Navy Secretary, Carlos del Toro, this is what he said. He said, AUKUS is critical to stopping China from, quote, destroying the world order. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, we are the aggressors here and we somehow think and have, you know, imagined this world up in which China wants to, you know, destroy the world order. Now, they want a new order, and we're going to talk about that shortly, yeah. <laughs> but they want an improved economic and diplomatic yeah. order in which countries like they and, and like Russia are not excluded from the rules of the game for, you know, having different ideas. Yeah, what they want is what the UN and related mechanisms, the Bretton Woods uh, International uh, exchange system and so on was supposed to be but never really became mm. so uh, yeah this is when they talk about this rules-based order that's the rules imposed by the especially in the post-war post-cold war period by the unipolar hegemon as they say the so, united states and britain and yeah hangers so on like australia not international not law. international it's law the rules that they yeah. Devised just and you'll and you'll notice um, when we go as we're going to go through shortly. Mm. A Penny Wong in her speech never says international law. Yeah, no, it's well, always well. Before we go into a few <laughs> of the things, highlights of what Wong said, uh, just review for people what Paul Keating has said, which the Labor Party has been forced to react to. Yeah, so uh, shortly uh, about six weeks, I think, after AUKUS was announced back in late because uh, it was announced in September of 2021 and in November then Keating uh, came out of retirement as it were uh, 20 years since he'd been at the uh, National Press Club uh, and he uh, he uh, came and gave a speech just ripping the whole thing apart this is what it's really about this is about as he put it securing our security from Asia not in Asia uh, alienating the rest of the region turning back to our old colonial master Britain and, uh, and, the, United, and the United States that's uh, uh, trying to maintain its strategic primacy all over the world, especially in the Asia-Pacific, or Indo-Pacific as they call it now. <laughs> um, and uh, just saying, none of this is going to work anyway, and in the meantime we're, we're making an enemy 
uh, making ourselves the enemy effectively of the whole region, the whole neighbourhood. We're creating a danger for ourselves yeah. by acting this way. Whereas what he had done, and as our viewers will know, we've had we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of uh, <laughs> disagreements. <laughs> To put it mildly, with Paul Keating on a lot of things uh, to do with economic policy and privatisation and neoliberal uh, neoliberalism in, ge in general. I mean, he's the guy who brought it in. Mm. All the liberal policies that were too radical for the old school liberals like Fraser. Um, but on defence policy and foreign policy, he was the last Prime Minister ever to have anything approaching a, a, a plan mm. For, for Australia to be actually sovereign and make our own decisions yep. and not just blindly follow the Americans and the British into whatever misadventures they got, on, got into. He signed the uh, Strategic Cooperation Treaty with, uh, with Indonesia. There was, uh, there was a plan to, make, to get Australia into ASEAN, mm. uh, all these sort of things, like not just an idea but an, act, an actual plan uh, and, of course, Howard wrecked all that and off we went to Afghanistan follow it, and Iraq and all the rest of it. So, um, and then in, after the, uh, this, this month, when was this? Uh, so just over a month ago when they announced the, uh, the AUKUS submarine deal, the first pillar of this Australia-UK-US security uh, uh, agreement, so-called, um, he, he made another speech um, going after all of the nonsense in that as well about yeah. it. You know, we're, on, we're, we're beggaring ourselves to support the, nu the American <laughs> nuclear submarine industry because they can't afford to build their own. So we're going to pay for it on the hopes that they mm. eventually find a few for us, which will be out of date by the time we get them. Uh, and it's in the meantime, it's all about gearing up, making Australia the forward operating base for a, a war with China mm -hmm. that none of no one else in the region wants, even Japan. No. <laughs> uh, their economy is dependent as dependent on China as ours is. Um, mm. Yeah. And uh, and just again tore apart the whole policy. Just says this is not in the national interest. This is not going to provide security anyway. Uh, and we're on the hook for you know, 308, they say 380 million uh, billion, I should say, dollars. Well, good luck with that. That'll, that'll be the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. um, and, he, and he also went after these defence and military industrial complex funded bodies like ASPE, like, the yeah, Australian Strategic, Strategic Policy Institute, and the Liberal and the Neocom mm. sympathiser imperialist, basically, uh, intelligence apparatchiks that the Morrison government had installed and Labor kept them all. Mm. <laughs> if there had been any intention to change policies, they would yeah. have cleaned them out, as, as Keating, in Keating's words. Clean them out. He said the nutters are in charge of the asylum. Yeah, yeah, as he's said a number of times. Um, so, yeah, Wong, Penny Wong, um, you know, for all her piety of, you know, we're doing this for all the right reasons... You know, it was very, very clear that this was all about generating consent for this AUKUS $370 billion sub-deal, as is everything, and all the propaganda and all the McCarthyism that's coming up right now, all the, the media activity around this subject. Um, so she talked about averting war and maintaining peace and how we shape this region to reflect our national interests and how those interests lie in a region that operates by rules, standards and norms. Mm. And that's the bit I was thinking Not of. international Rules, law. standards and norms, not law. No, exactly. Not, this... the, not the equal application to everybody of agreed international law that mm -hmm. we've signed on to, that the Americans have mostly signed on to, mm -hmm. everybody else has. Uh, no, no. Rules, our rules. Yeah. Uh, or the Americans and British rules that we've made ourselves voluntarily the champion of. Uh, and norms, that is status quo, practice as usual. So we're the ones who get to go gallivanting around the world, rampaging around the world, destroying other people's countries. Mm, that's um, right. Because that's the norm. We now. need to keep and we and need to keep it that, that way. Right that's in that system. That's what she's saying. Yeah. No. Exactly. And and she went on to say, uh, you know, this is about how we contribute to the regional balance of power. Right. So it's about yeah. power politics. And again. Know, 
listen, the, the words are important, that keeps the peace by shaping the region we want. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the region isn't shaped the way that we want, yeah. then we, well, what's the opposite of peace? Yeah. <laughs> See, no, we can't. this is, she's, she's lying, but she's also not. Yeah. Like I said, this person is not stupid. No. This is a very dangerous sophist we're looking at here. Mm -hmm. Then she says, strategic competition is operating on several levels, domains that we might prefer to separate, economic, diplomatic, strategic, military, all interwoven and all framed by an intense contest, contest of narratives, mm. which is true in as far as it goes that these domains are all interwoven and we'll... We'll show that on the other side, the good side of developments, you know, in a minute. Um, but she clarified that what we, we, she said, we need to understand what is being competed for vis-a-vis -vis this strategic competition. That it is more than great power rivalry and is in fact nothing less than a contest over the way our region and our world work. World. Right. So she keeps going on multiple times in this speech, oh, we don't want to force anyone to make a binary choice. We don't want to make a binary choice. Mm. But then demanding, saying that we already have, and you, the rest of the Pacific family, as they like to call it, you have to make the same choice or we're going to war. Yeah. So and we probably are anyway. <laughs> now, Keating's response to this, in turn, was interesting because she was asked a question about you know, Keating, the first question that came up, obviously pre-planned after the press conference mm. address. Dorothy Dixer. Yeah, she reduced it to a personal kind of attack, which, mm. which is what, you know, they prefer to do when they don't want to really take on the real issues. But Keating responded in turn saying, you know, I didn't expect anything more than platitudes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she didn't even attempt, he said, any kind of resolution or solution that would suit both sides, which is hmm. what diplomacy is about. We didn't have any, any actual policy content at all besides blindly going on doing what we've been doing. Mm. Um, and he said that never before has a Labor government been so bereft of policy. Yeah, or of policy ambition was the, was the, the last phrase in that sentence, mm. I remember. Um, and his statement is available multiple places online, including Pearls and Irritations, the uh, public policy journal that the former public service boss, John Menadue, mm -hmm. uh, administers. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, no ambition. No, you know, they keep throwing the, as he said in his previous speech in March, just magically dropping the word sovereignty into every sentence like a magic talisman doesn't make it real. No, right? that's right. And so... There's no ideas. Okay, if you want to talk about a, maintaining a balance, of maintaining strategic balance, well, we had that up until 2011. It was very much imperfect, but we had that. It was better than what we've got now. Yeah, and it was Labor. Never forget this. It was Labor that destroyed that. It was the Julia Gillard Labor government in which all of the current top leadership of this Labor government were were uh, either senior cabinet members or at least outer minister, mm -hmm. outer members, outer cabinet ministers, um, and uh, and most a lot of these uh, current crop of MPs were staffers to, <laughs> to the people who were in charge back then, mm -hmm. who aren't in the game anymore, at least officially. So, um, including uh, Mr. Chalmers, the treasurer, who's trying to find ways to pay for all this by cutting the guts out of everything that Labor says it stands for. Yeah. So, and um, I'll just add to that picture with you know with Keating's comments that we wrote up last week in the alert service the fact that in New Zealand there's been quite a strong reaction against AUKUS and the danger it represents for this region with people mm. from uh, the former National Prime Minister Jim Bolger to Labor Helen Clark uh, MPs from the Nationals and the Greens really opposing strongly opposing AUKUS. Um, so this, this is important and this is going to build um, what Wong is dredging up here. It's all old balance of power politics. Mm. The, it's the old system which, if she hasn't noticed, is dying on the vine. I mean, you know, unless she, she's either in complete denial of reality or, you know, perhaps she has been like that... Um, Spanish woman that's just been 500 days in a cave. 
<laughs> who came out and didn't even know there was a war in Ukraine. She was in a cave in Russia. Oh, okay. I don't know where the cave was. But anyway, you know, that, that's what it seems like because the complete denial of reality of how the world has changed, particularly mm. since the sanctions on Russia have indicated to the majority of the world's nations and hosting the majority of the world's populations, known as the global majority or the global south, mm. have realised, okay, um, we could be excluded from this financial and economic yeah. order at any point, and not just, the, just like Russia. Yeah, and not just with the sanctions and all of that, um, which they've been doing since long before there was yeah. any, any suggestion of a war anywhere. That's right. But And also on China, that the Trump administration was trying to do, and just always blows up in their faces, but all they know how to do is double down. But seizing foreign currency reserves. Oh, we decided we don't like your government, mm. so we'll declare someone else the president, you know, Venezuela. This opposition leader, so-called, who actually wasn't and has never won an election to anything... They, they, oh, he's the president now. Yeah. <laughs> Juan Guaido, random guy Doe, as, as some people called him. So, uh, and, oh, well, if you won't put him in charge of your government, we'll just seize all your foreign currency reserves and steal, your, uh, steal the, the, the funds of, your, of the accounts of your state oil company mm-hmm. that we can get hold of in US banks because they're there trading oil on the world market in the US dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they did it to Afghanistan when they pulled out under Biden just not long ago, they, okay, well, we'll just, we'll confiscate all of your foreign currency reserves and starve your people because we love them so much. Um, and uh, and everyone else around the world is going, well, yeah. if, you, if, if you're just going to go and do that, you can do it to anyone, mm-hmm. well, we're getting out of this system. This, this Big is surprise. A, you know, that, that's their declaration. This is our rules-based game and you ain't changing the yeah, rules yeah. and that's what... Penny's defending here, but yeah. we, we want to talk about how a new order is taking shape around them, despite, you know, they can be kicking and screaming and stamping their feet like Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> this isn't real, but it's real and it's happening and there's no winding the clock back. Um, so just some updates on that uh, vision for a new order, which really was highlighted this week. Um, or last week with the trip of the Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, to China, uh, where he had meetings, bilateral meetings, with President of China, Xi Jinping, and a number of commercial and partnership agreements were signed. He also presided over the investiture of former Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff at the New, New Development Bank, which is the bank of the... BRICS countries, Brazil, Mm. Russia, India, China, South Africa, and an expanding array of countries that are joining that grouping. Um, Lula made clear before he even went that Brazil wants to create a strong foreign policy front as an international protagonist in fighting for a new, a fair and just economic order that Mm. weighs all countries equally. he said that the new development bank is a crucial part of that new financial order because currently nations are hostage to international lenders. And he talked about um, Argentina because while he was in Beijing, the US Department um, Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, was in Argentina telling them that they have to suffer short-term pain to get their financial house in order so Mm. that... Uh, they can improve conditions for foreign investors, yeah. not for the people of the country. And without getting into detail now, anyone who knows any of the history of Argentina and its debt defaults and all of the pain that's oh, been yeah. put through by the IMF and the United States over the years, I mean, talk about waving a red flag to a bull. How oh, stupid yeah. can these people get? Um, and so Lula said, you know, he talked about we have to uh, free countries from the shackles of these IMF conditionalities No bank should be asphyxiating countries the way the IMF is doing to Argentina, uh, holding a knife to Argentina's neck. I mean, he really made Mm. a pointed attack on this current framework. And then he brought it, you know, to a real crescendo point at a roundtable discussion of the New Development Bank where he said, look, every night I ask myself, why all countries have to base their trade on the dollar? Why can't we do trade based on our own currencies? Who was it that decided that the dollar was the currency after the 1971 disappearance of the gold standard? Um, So, of course, this 
brings to a head a huge issue which has been building where in previous, uh, I just want to run through a number of previous developments that we've, it's all in the alert services. If you want more information, you can contact us for a copy of that. But um, these are just developments in the last few weeks, not comprehensive. But China and Brazil had already signed an agreement uh, in recent weeks to trade in yuan using China's CIPS settlement system rather than the Western SWIFT settlement system. And since then, China's Industrial and Commercial Bank conducted the first cross-border yuan settlement transaction in Brazil via its local branch. So it's happening already. Um, you've already had um, the uh, China and also France actually made their first energy purchases from the United Arab Emirates in yuan. So that's happening. Um, the Saudis and Chinese earlier in the year agreed to trade oil in yuan, also using the CIPS system, so avoiding SWIFT and so forth. Um, the Malaysian Prime Minister was just in China this month and discussed moving away from the dollar and using the ringgit and yuan for trade, as well as proposing an Asian monetary fund and local BRICS projects. And Russia and Vietnam have agreed to develop a detailed roadmap for uh, payments in national currencies as well as it's always combined you'll notice with infrastructure development mm -hmm. because as I'll go through the vision that they have um, for a new trade framework and including what's being proposed as a BRICS common currency which is going to be discussed in August when the BRICS holds its leaders summit in South Africa it's not about creating a new synthetic currency or some kind of um, financial object. Mm. It's, it's not about replacing the US dollar no. um, and otherwise maintaining essentially the current system. It, it's not about the currency at all per se. It's about establishing a stable framework in which, one, production can be fostered and that's mm. why the discussions of infrastructure and what do we need to have that production made possible because we don't have enough of X, Y, Z um, that's what's that's the primary thing, and secondly, trade not for the purpose of making profit out of globalized trade, you know, mm. networks, but how do we get those goods that are produced to where they're needed? You know, if you look mm. about the, the problems with grain recently, and you know, regard to the war situation, but it's a problem that pre-existed. Where do we get the food? Where do we get the resources to mm. where they're required? And, of course, under the Bretton Woods arrangements after World War II that Franklin Roosevelt put in place, um, it was a system that was set up where currencies were to be kept stable so that you had a firm basis to conduct that trade, that you it excluded speculation in currencies, for instance. Hmm. That was Roosevelt's vision. Yeah, it pegged currencies relative to gold and thus relative to each other. Um, with the provision to renegotiate the relative values um, from time to time as, as the local economic conditions uh, required, uh, demanded. You know, if, you're, if your economy is stronger, your currency gets stronger, you, you know, and so on. But, uh, and, and this is something that we're taught nowadays, all this free market stuff. That's the, that's the, there was never any science to this. This was the, the British liberal economic model from the British East India Company days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maritime, maritime empire with colonies all over the world. There were a bunch of them. England was the biggest one for the longest. And that's what essentially the United States has become as well. The mm -hmm. empire it once rebelled against. It became that, unfortunately, for everybody, especially the lower... Uh, 75-odd percent uh, socioeconomic bracket of the population of the United States itself, mm -hmm. just like Britain with the workhouses in the 19th century and all the rest of it. People can go and read about Read Dickens. Um, but economics, if you want efficiency in trade, and this is what the Chinese, are, it's, it's not that these things don't make a profit, you know, these trade arrangements, but you add as much value as possible in the countries where the resources are because then you're shipping, you're shipping uh, either primary steel, say, we, like with the Iron Boomerang project that we've been talking about here a lot, um, instead of selling dirt, that's for, you know, ores that are 40% dirt, 
um, and then someone else makes the steel. So the, just as one example, so the country on the other end, it's more efficient for them to ship that product over and then just put it straight to work instead of doing all that extra work themselves and paying for, the, for expensive shipping on dirt. And it's, and it's, more, uh, it's more economic activity, more skills, more infrastructure, in the source country, local development, yeah, yeah more, more money going through because money is only worth something when it's circulating. Yeah, that's the idea behind GDP, although it's misused as a metric nowadays. But so everyone gets ahead. Uh, it's not a it, there's not some finite pool of of potential income that you have to cut everyone else's throat to get more share of. Mm. The way that we we've been taught to think about it in what's called conventional economics these days. Yeah, and this, this exact idea really was raised at the Moscow Economic Forum on the 4th to 5th of April by someone who's, who we've intersected for three decades um, with our work with the uh, late American physical economist Lyndon LaRouche, and that's Sergei Glaziev, who's the Minister for the Integration and Macroeconomics of the Eurasian Economic Commission. So uh, he's just published a new book, Chinese Economic Miracle, Lessons for Russia and the World. And he was very, very blunt at this conference that his own country itself and every country must examine China's unique economic model and learn from it. And he discussed China's successful investment policy, which, as we're talking about, puts production and development ahead of money those decisions are primary. Money and monetary processes are merely the footprint of those economic processes because that's really what economic is. How do you, economics is you, how do you provide for the people of a country? Um, and he's discussed this idea uh, that any new unit of account, or call it a currency if you like, but a unit of account for trade should be linked to tangible commodities. So similar to what the Bretton Woods arrangement was, mm. but not only gold, but things like oil, metals, grains and water. And Russia and the BRICS countries have been working for some time now on creating an exchange of sorts for the most important commodities, including gold, that excludes speculation mm -hmm. but sets a stable price, what they call a long-term producer price, and including for things like grain and other really important commodities. Um, so that, you know, for trade purposes, you have that stability that you're not going to have speculation mm. come in to wildly um, change the prices. Yeah, no more paper barrels, mm. as they oh, call yeah. You know, JP Morgan, I don't know what the stats are now, but JP Morgan Investment Bank in America for many years was the biggest trader in oil and it never actually bought a single physical barrel of oil. It was by, it was trading futures and, um, you know, paper basically, or theoretical paper, digital, digital equivalent of paper. Mm. Um, Goldman Sachs was the same with various metals, industrial metals, aluminium, um, copper. Uh, yeah. So they're cutting all of that out. So, you know, uh, useless overheads yeah. that are just financiers finding ways to eat everyone else's lunch mm -hmm. um, without doing any actual work themselves. And by cutting all that out, you're doing another um, really critical thing, which is, um, you know, taking apart the entire global speculative financial bubble that's mm. about to burst and crush us all anyway. Um, so it's cr a crucial factor. But you can read more about this in the alert. Um, there's an article about how we can... Uh, have a new Bretton Woods of sorts, particularly, I think, with this conception of Glaziev, because when he says, go back and look at what China's doing, mm. um, China, as we've written extensively in the past, developed its system by looking around the world and taking the best of the best that they could determine. Mm. And a big chunk of that was based on American policy after the War of Independence, of Alexander Hamilton and his national banking policies as also Australia's Commonwealth Bank was modelled on. Mm. So I think that's a basis uh, to bring nations together that the US could be brought to an agreement with countries like China and Russia if we were to get them on the same page in regard to that kind of economic policy, which at a certain point there's going to be no avoiding due to the fact that this current system is not long for this world. Mm -hmm. um, so I think... 
you know, we'll stop there and go on because we want to leave plenty of time for our next topic, which is more Australians targeted by McCarthyism. Will you be next? Now, last week, Richard, you and Robbie talked at length uh, about this Australian pilot who was locked up for training Chinese military pilots in South Africa. Mm. Um, Dan Duggan, maybe you just want to recap for people that didn't watch that show what, what that story was about briefly. Yeah. Um, just basically a completely normal, above-board business operation uh, flight training academy for test pilots in, um, in South Africa where... This gentleman, uh, Mr. Duggan, was, uh, he's a, a former U.S. citizen, retired United States Marine Corps military pilot, <clears throat> um, and he, fighter pilot, and he, uh, he and a bunch of British and other uh, nationality um, pilots were training people at this flight school from all over the world, including apparently some from China, uh, and there was nothing uh, against the law about it in any country except that the, U- the U.S. says that some, that this particular thing that he's supposed to have done, teaching techniques to land on aircraft carriers, falls under their uh, defence, um, their, expo- their Arms Export Control Act, and he didn't get permission, so therefore it's illegal, and then therefore everything that he did in relation to that is also illegal. Mm. Uh, but it's not, none of it's illegal under Australian law, um, so he shouldn't actually be able to be extradited from Australia to the United States like they're demanding. Mm. Um, uh, but, of course, our government being the lapdogs that they are, mm. they just said, yes, sir, um, and they've thrown this guy in solitary confinement, uh, freezing yeah. cold conditions, no heating, no blankets. It's real, you know, the stuff that we're told goes on in supposedly authoritarian countries, whether it actually does or not, and I they're know. doing it to people, our, our own people here. Yeah, this guy is an Australian citizen. We're going to talk about another example today, which is what this show's yeah. topic's about. Uh, another person that, and they're designated, you know, high security risks and whatnot, even though they're family men and, you know, just mm. basic Joe Blows out there, right? They're not any great security risks. So we, we want to look at what's going on here. But I just before we get into that, put up on the screen, this was the reaction we got from the Free Dan Duggan tweet, Twitter account to last week's show, where they really thanked us uh, for bringing attention to this and um, lifting Dan's spirits, which is really good to know. Um, And I want to preface the new case we're going to talk about with a tweet put out by that same account on the 15th of April, which was quite prescient. He said there will be, or they said, there will be many more victims wheeled out to justify the imaginary war with China and many reprisals on the other side. The human carnage has begun. Beware businesses working with China. Beware miners. Beware expats. Beware academics, students, farmers and flying schools. You may be next. And we are getting people um, that work on matters relating to cooperation with China coming to us and saying, you know, we're really concerned, I'm really concerned that I could be targeted for doing the slightest thing just because Mm. the word China comes up. So this latest case, uh, if you could run through it, is relating to a Sydney businessman, Alexander Sergo, who was arrested by the Federal Police on the 14th of April, and this is part of an ongoing counter-foreign interference task Mm -hmm. force operation by ASIO. Yeah, ASIO and the Federal Police, joint task force thing. So. Yeah, so this guy was a consultant, uh, business consultant working in China. Uh, and he, he has family in Australia. He's currently, well, until he got locked up, he uh, lives in Bondi. Uh, he's moved, moved all his belongings back from China and, uh, according to the papers, has, uh, according to his lawyer quoted in the papers, um, and has, uh, he's uh, helping out, he's uh, living with and helping, take, helping look after his uh, aged mother, in Bondi, uh, but yeah, so he was working in China. He was approached by two people who um, said they worked for a think tank, um, and they commissioned shock horror research, business business intelligence research from a consultant on things like from a business consultant. Who'd have thought, right? <laughs> um, on things like. Yeah, they, they're spinning it as, oh, things critical to our national defence. But it's things like lithium mines. Like, mm. if, you're an, if, if, you're, if you're a business-oriented business, uh, think tank mm. in China, well, you know, where did, chi- where did the Chinese buy most of their raw materials that they don't produce for themselves? Uh, and, and all of these sorts of things, right? So 
lithium mines, uh, they wanted to know about uh, the public response to the thing, details about the AUKUS deal right. um, that we were talking about before. Because of course they did, because these things affect business, yeah. right? And so anyway, things in that vein. Uh, ASIO says that this was reckless foreign interference, that these two people are actually uh, Chinese government agents, intelligence uh, ministry of state security agents of some description. Uh, the full details haven't been released. This is just what's come out in the papers, and, um, mm. uh, in the public, what's been out, allowed out in public in the courts and so on. There was a arraignment hearing the other day. So supposedly... This guy's research uh, recklessly endangered Australia's national security by giving, you would think, secret information, privileged information at the very least, to Chinese government agents, except that they met him in cafes, sometimes otherwise empty cafes, because, well, maybe... And he said, this is how things happen in China and a lot of other places, probably including here. Someone quietly slips the, the cafe owner a few hundred dollars to, to keep everyone else out of your little mm. you know, room that you're in so that you can have a private discussion, these sort of things. Like, mm. this is not unusual uh, in a lot of places around the world. And, uh, but there's no secret information anyway. Mm. So all the information that he gathered for these two people mm -hmm. that he was working for was all public? All public domain. This is purely, this is completely ordinary, uh, just what a business, consultant bus, does. Yeah, business yeah. intelligence company. This is their whole business model, right? You, you have a specialised area of knowledge. You do research in that area. You put together reports for people who pay you to do so. A lot of his stuff, a lot of this stuff that he bases his reports on is Australian Financial Review articles, <laughs> uh, Lowy <laughs> Institute. In yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, actually do that. But um, they actually deserve to be there, a yeah. lot of them. But, um, but they, they, they jeopardised, they actually jeopardised uh, Australian national interest on behalf of the United States, and so they're the good guys, apparently. <laughs> you know. They're following the rules. Yeah, they're following the rules-based order. Um, so, yeah, that's all this guy did. Um, and, and his lawyer, who's um, previously been prosecuted himself unjustly for supposedly endangering national security, Bernard Kaleri, and that mm. got thrown out. One of the very few decent things this Labor government did dropped the charges, dropped the previous government's charges against him um, over the East Timor business, um, spying on their cabinet and so on. He represented the whistleblower. Um, Bernard Kaleri, his name is. Mm. Um, and so he just said, yeah, look, um, like I said, they can't release this information publicly until the court says they can, but uh, it says this guy, Zergo, gave ASIO these passwords to his computer, said, yeah, check it out, and all the information is on there. It's all public information. He didn't have access to or even solicit from anybody and get turned down any secret information, any privileged information whatsoever. This is just a pure witch hunt. Mm. There's, there's nothing to this. Now, he's being kept in solitary yeah. confinement with the lights on 24 hours a day. Yeah, well, that's what the papers say. Um, it's one of these things. They put him in, they class you as a uh, high-risk uh, inmate, like protection non-association. They've mm. done the same thing to, to Daniel Duggan. Um, supposedly, the judge says, and this is how you can tell he's bought into all this McCarthyist nonsense as well, or just being told to play up to it, which I have a way it works. I don't know the guy, but um, to judge his character, but uh, saying, well, if we didn't, if if we we have to put him in effectively protective custody, can't yeah. give him bail to go back and go back to his mother, who he's helping look after because she's nearly ninety, um, because oh, because he's going to he, he's uh, being exposed for. Yeah, now that this has come out, then uh, I'm sure there'll be people from China who will be from the Chinese government who will be interested in him not testifying. Like he thinks they're going to have hitmen come to Bondi and whack this bloke like a mafia movie or some Cold War spy thriller because he wrote business intelligence research reports based on public information. Mm. Um, and, and he says, oh, well, if it was all public, why couldn't they do that? Well, maybe because they're not native English speakers and don't know the nuances of the Australian political and economic scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, why do you think people hire consultants? Mm, that's right. This whole um, thing is nuts. Yeah, and, you know, between this story, the Duggan story and countless others, you know, we're creating a climate here, a chilling climate, which mm. is akin exactly to how this rules-based order we've been discussing was created in the first place, after World War Two, the McCarthyism in the United States, you know, the Reds under the bed, that whole mentality, 
was critical to build a state of fear mm. uh, in order to usher in that rules-based system um, to trash the vision that we talked about that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to rebuild the world, after, not just after the war, but to take countries under the heel of British colonialism mm. and have this rising sovereignty of nations and development because, of course, sovereignty has to be backed up mm. by the economic development so that they can continue to assert that sovereignty, which is something Australia <laughs> must come back to. Yeah, and, and that's what these laws were designed from the outset to do, and we warned and many other people did, the Australian mm. Lawyers Alliance, for, for one, um, off the top of my head, whose spokesman, at least back then, is also one of um, Julian Assange's um, prominent supporters, Greg Barnes. They warned back... They warned and we warned that this is designed to scare anyone out of doing anything that might, that, uh, you know, with, with designated enemy countries, which is now is primarily China, um, Russia also, um, whoever else we get told is the bad guy next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and when this guy was arrested and before his name had even been published, they, the AFP went on a fishing expedition and said, oh, well, we believe other people have been in contact with these two these two agents, who they only gave their English, the first English first names they use, Ken and Evelyn, um, which is again is not uncommon in, in, uncommon in China and many other countries because a lot of English speakers can't pronounce their real names, mm. so whatever. But um, so who knows who these people even are? And they're saying, oh, you better contact us in case you know the implication being otherwise you might be on the hook next. Mm. This is this is a McCarthyite witch hunt. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, um, and you can read more about that story that Richard wrote up for this week's Australian Alert Service, which is our weekly publication and it is available by subscription. And I will say stay tuned because um, we will have more. We're going to be talking about either in the next issue or the one following um, the host of different um, private groups now that are coming out, including some former Aspie players that are um, getting ready to um, pig out at the public trough of money you know, military dollars that are being spun over this AUKUS mm. deal. Again, more consulting fees, but it's all right when you do it with Americans. Exactly. So stay tuned for more on that uh, and more that we'll have next week on the RBA story. Don't forget to write your submission. You've got till Friday. So um, go and do it right after watching the show and then it's done. And don't forget to call your counsellor as well and let them know that they can make a submission and they can get others to do the same in the local community. So that's the show for this week. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.